Anyone get that song reference that I absolutely butchered? <laughs> anyway, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. As promised at the end of last episode, today I'm going to talk about pressurization. And when you take a second to think about it, a pressurized aircraft is a pretty wild concept. Since humans are, are very sensitive to pressure, we have to protect ourselves and simulate an environment in the aircraft that we are used to on the ground. And if we have to do that, why don't we just fly at a lower altitude so that we wouldn't have to pressurize the cabin? Well, the thing is, if, if we're down at a lower altitude, the atmosphere is thick. And so while our lungs do appreciate this, because it will force plenty of air into our, our lungs when we inhale, for a jet engine, this is very inefficient. The massive amount of air has to be offset by a large amount of fuel in order to create the desirable amount of thrust given the weight of the aircraft. And in addition, because that air is so much thicker, there's more resistance, known as drag, and so the thrust required by the engine is going to be that much more and then we'll need more fuel to compensate for that. So it's just not as efficient and so we're going to be going a lot slower. But as we increase our altitude, the air molecules are more spread apart so that when the engine compresses the air, the overall volume of air is, is less compared to a lower altitude. And in addition, because the air is thinner, less drag is felt upon the airframe and we are able to go much, much faster. So now that we're at a higher altitude, while the engines and airframe are more efficient, we humans aren't so efficient without proper pressurization because, well, we just can't breathe as well. So the solution? Pressurize the cabin of the aircraft to simulate a sea level-like environment. And the, the key thing about pressurizing an object is, is understanding its structural limits. And that's why when engineers design pressurized aircraft, they test different materials and work with many different designs before coming to the result uh, that balances functionality, efficiency, and cost effectiveness. And I'm, I'm not going to dive too deeply into aircraft design process because that it's honestly leaps beyond my comprehension, uh, but I can at least share the basics of how pressurization systems work. And it all comes down to differential pressure. In other words, what really matters is the aircraft's ability to withstand a difference in pressure between the outside and inside of the aircraft. So when we're here at sea level, uh, I'd say most of us uh, tuned into this podcast and myself, or most of us are at sea level, uh, the air pressure is about 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure, meaning that for every square inch, uh, imagine you're able to hold a, a two-dimensional uh, piece of the atmosphere. Uh, a square inch, two-dimensional two, two piece, that's going to be 14.7 pounds uh, of pressure on that square inch. Now, we don't really think of that. We can't really feel that, uh, but that's just because we're used to it. That's how our body functions in this pressure. Uh, and so when we sit at the gate, for example, at the airport, the doors are open, the pressure is equal. You know, the pressure inside the aircraft, outside the aircraft, everything's equal. But once we close the doors and start the engines, an initial pressurization occurs to establish a positive pressure on the airframe. 
and we always want the pressure inside the aircraft to be higher than the pressure outside the aircraft. And this makes sense, right? Because once we're way up at altitude, pressure is going to be much lower, the, the ambient outside pressure. So naturally, uh, we're going to need the inside of the aircraft to be at a higher pressure. So again, on the ground, once we close the boarding doors and get the engine started, that process starts right away. And now, I, this doesn't mean that we actually have to do anything as long as all the switches are set into their auto mode. For these modern jets, it's all automatically. It happens all automatically. And again, every jet's going to be a little bit different, but on the Embraer jet uh, that I fly, the 190, it's, it's all automated. And most modern jets will also be automated as well. Some older jets might have a manual pressurization system with some extra dials and switches, and that would require the pilots to uh, make sure to hit those switches at, at appropriate times. But most modern airliners will have an automatically controlled pressurization system, so we don't have to worry about it. So as we climb in altitude, the system maintains a specific differential pressure. And it does this by opening and closing an outflow valve. But hold on, won't too much air just leak out? And yes, it would. Uh, and so the way that we maintain the pressure is we need a very powerful source of air pressure. And on an airliner, we get that from the engines. And this might sound kind of nuts. And I remember the first time that I heard this, I was also a bit dumbfounded by the fact that we're going to take air from the engine. And when I say we take air from the engines, is that the exhaust? No, because obviously exhaust air would be very poisonous for us to breathe in. But in the second stage of the engine, there's the compression stage. And this is just a series of fan blades and stator vanes that channel and compress the air to a very high pressure, uh, which is often in excess of 50 pounds per square inch which going back to sea level, remember, it's only 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure that we need uh, to, to kind of simulate a, a normal sea level environment. So that's way more pressure than we normally need. And again, most of that is being used to compress the air, mix in with fuel, add an ignition source, and boom, you've got that thrust for the engine. But for us breathing in the cabin, we're going to steal just a little bit of that uh, in order to pressurize. So we borrow just a bit from the engine, and this is referred to as bleed air. And the engine is essentially bleeding, so to speak, and so we're taking that in and uh, putting it and forcing it into the cabin. Uh, and also the bleed air can be used for de-icing systems, uh, but that's a whole other topic too. Now one thing to keep in mind is when you take air and compress it really hard, like you do in the engine, what happens? Well, it excites the molecules and things get pretty toasty about 600 degrees Celsius toasty. So we wouldn't do too well in that heat. And so that bleed air then gets cooled using air conditioning packs. And then after that, it goes into the cabin and it's perfectly fine to breathe. And you've probably heard about uh, how well aircraft refresh the air. Uh, and this is absolutely true. Most aircraft will take in roughly 50% new air from the engine bleeds and recirculate other air. Uh, there's there's so much movement of air in the aircraft. I mean, if you take a moment and think back uh, to the last time you flew, and have you ever noticed when something smells? Uh, I don't know, like someone opened a, a can of tuna, uh, and whether that's literal or maybe they've had some trouble with digestion, uh, you notice that smell. It might be very pungent at first, but it doesn't stick around for too long. And this is because of how quickly air gets moved around and replenished. So... 
it's it's good to breathe. You know, you can be confined in a tight space and you don't have to feel so icky uh, being so close to a bunch of people because the air is circulated really well. So now that we have a source of pressurized air uh, and aforementioned, uh, the pressure is regulated using an outflow valve to maintain a good positive pressure differential with the outside. Again, it's all about uh, maintaining a, a safe differential pressure so that the airframe uh, is not under too much pressure that it will break, but it's under enough pressure that we'll, able to, that we'll be able to breathe. And in the flight deck, we have three indicators that we use to uh, indicate how the pressurization system is doing you know, in order to monitor it. So we have a differential gauge, uh, which just measures the difference between outside and inside pressure. We have a cabin altimeter, which tells us what the pressure equals in an altitude readout so that we can kind of understand what the equivalent altitude we're at inside the cabin in terms of our ability to breathe. And then lastly, we have a cabin rate of change indicator, which uh, is expressed in a, it's a it's a change of pressure uh, expressed as a vertical speed readout, which is just like the vertical speed indicator uh, that we have in our rate to, to show our rate of climb or descent in the actual aircraft. So it's uh, the cabin altimeter and the rate of change um, uh, vertical rate of change pressure indicator is is very similar to our actual. Um, altimeter and vertical speed indicator just so it's easy for us to read. So the only really new uh, indicator so to speak is the differential gauge but again it's very easy to understand. It's just read out in uh, uh, differential in terms of pounds per square inch difference between the inside and the outside. So those are the three instruments that we use uh, in order to monitor uh, all the all the pressurization to make sure everything's working fine. And if we were to lose pressure uh, the system would start yelling at us. Uh, you know, each jet has a, uh, some sort of a, um, alerting system, and it will give you a ding or a message or something, uh, and, and that'll happen if, if pressure does drop. Uh, but we would be able to see the pressure dropping on uh, the cabin altimeter, on the differential pressure gauge. We, we would see uh, our rate of change going up which would indicate that we're losing pressure. So those kind of things, those little signs we would get before we would exceed a certain limitation. And each jet's a little bit different, but in the, uh, the Embraer, for example, once the cabin altitude hits 9,700 feet or higher, we will get a cabin altitude high message on our ICAST screen. Uh, and this ICAST screen is, is our centralized screen that displays engine parameters, pressurization, uh, the flaps and slabs, among other things. And ICAST, it's E-I-C-A-S, uh, e and that stands for Engine Indicating Crew Alert System. Uh, every jet's a little bit different, but that's how we are able to view uh, the pressurization indications, which, again, are really important. So before I dive into what happens if we do get this kind of message, this cabin altitude high message, for example, let's revisit uh, the pressure differential. So each jet will vary a little bit, but for the most part, the system will set a target around eight pounds per square inch of a maximum differential. And specifically on the Embraer, uh, it'll be 7.8 pounds per square inch differential when we're below 37,000 feet. And once we're above 37,000 feet, it'll go to a maximum of 8.4 pounds per square inch. Uh, but again, it's it's most jets are roughly around 8 pounds per square inch of differential between the inside and the outside. And so what does that mean for cabin altitude? 
Well, when you're up at a higher altitude, uh, above 30,000 feet, the cabin altitude will be about 8,000 feet or so. In other words, the, the air that you will be breathing is as if you're sitting uh, on a mountain that's 8,000 feet tall, which seems kind of crazy, right? I mean, is there enough oxygen at 8,000 feet? Uh, there definitely is. Uh, most people will experience uh, a loss of oxygen in their blood once they get to about 10,000 feet or higher. Um, but at 8,000 feet, we're fine. And we're also sitting, which is another thing. Uh, yes, there is a, a less concentration of oxygen, but you're sitting uh, in your seat the whole time. You know, you're not moving about a bunch. I mean, if you did try sprinting, uh, you might be shorter of breath than normal. Uh, but no, this is not me suggesting that you try sprinting in the cabin. Good luck with that. Uh, but it, it's just to show that we never pressurize the cabin to sea level pressure when we're up at a high altitude. Now, when you're at a lower altitude, like 20,000 feet, 15,000 feet, the cabin is still being pressurized, but again, it's all down to the differential. So the, the cabin altimeter might be at sea level, uh, but that just has to do with the, the differential pressure. As you get to a high altitude, a cruising altitude above 30,000 feet, which is where most of the long haul flights will go, uh, well, I say long haul, any flight that's that's honestly above two, three hundred miles long, most times you'll be uh, you'll be above 30,000 feet. So that cabin altitude will only be uh, about 8,000 feet equivalent. So I mentioned that with the pressure differential of, of eight pounds per square inch, that'll give us a cabin altitude of 8,000 feet. Why don't we just pressurize it a little bit more to obtain a, a sea level pressure? Well, here's one thing to, to keep in mind. Again, it goes back to the differential pressure. If you're at 30,000 feet, the average pressure is only going to be about 4.4 pounds per square inch. So if we wanted sea level pressure of 14.7 pounds per square inch, that differential would be 10.3 pounds per square inch. And that's a pretty big differential. And I mean, you could design an aircraft that could handle this, but it would need a pretty thick hull, which would mean heavier components. And then that means you're adding weight to an aircraft, which really limits its range and capabilities. So it was determined that, you know, humans are absolutely fine in an ambient pressure of 10.9 PSI, which is about 8,000 feet. So passenger comfort is it's very acceptable. And although your ears might pop a little bit when we're climbing and descending, it's still very safe. Again, 10.9 PSI gives us 8,000 feet. So most of the time you're going to be about six to 8,000 foot cabin altitude and you won't even realize it. So what happens when something goes wrong? When you think about the fact that you are sitting in a pressurized tube way up at altitude and just inches away from an unlivable environment, it's, it's not shameful to be nervous about that, or at least be subtly curious about what happens if we lose pressure. I mean, it's, it's probably a, an intrusive thought that enters all of our minds at some point or another. <laughs> Uh, but first of all, there, there are three types of depressurization events that can happen. First one is slow, then you could have rapid, and then finally explosive. Slow depressurization is just as it sounds. It's slow. Uh, no one would really notice uh, this happening, and it's actually the most dangerous because you don't notice. It's, it's very hard to detect a slow change of pressure. And if, if it's going slow enough and you don't get any indications for any reason, eventually a lack of pressure will, will lead to hypoxia, which is just a lack of oxygen in the body. And eventually the, the brain will lack enough oxygen 
to remain conscious and then you will pass out. If it's not remedied, death could uh, eventually follow as well. And this is not to scare you, but this is just simply explaining the physics of, of what happens. Uh, and this did tragically happen to uh, the golfer Payne Stewart back in 1999. He was uh, headed from Florida to Texas. I think he was traveling in his, his Learjet. I believe he just finished up a, uh, a tournament. Um, and the jet failed to pressurize and the occupants all passed out. And unfortunately, the, the jet crashed after it ran out of fuel. It was on autopilot, and instead of making its turn towards Texas, I think it kept flying north and, and uh, crashed into some field out in uh, North Dakota. And luckily, there was nobody on the ground injured, but all the occupants on board, uh, they did not survive. Uh, the only good thing about this tragic type of event, if, if you could consider it a good thing, um, is that this type of event, it's, it's most likely completely painless and unnoticeable. Because what happens is when you get hypoxic, uh, you'll pass out, and you won't even notice it happening, and, and that's all there is to it. Uh, and in fact, one of the symptoms of, of uh, hypoxia is that you can become euphoric, so you actually feel pretty good. Um, so it's, it's actually, out of all the ways you could think about going, that would not be a bad way to go. Now, another type of depressurization is a, a rapid uh, depressurization, and, and this happens rapidly. <laughs> it's, it's very quick uh, and it's quite noticeable. And pilots in this situation have to think very quickly. And then the differentiation between rapid and explosive is uh, explosive is rapid, but it's just worse. It's quicker. And it's classified by that depressurization event happening in less than half of a second. So it's incredibly quick. Uh, and it's so fast that it can actually damage the human lungs, and that's why it's classified as something separate from rapid. Rapid depressurization uh, won't necessarily cause any tissue damage in the lungs, but explosive can. So if this uh, very unlikely event to occur, and, and I should preface this, uh, I'm talking about somewhat morbid sounding topic of what would happen if our cabin depressurizes. depressurizes. I mean, it's the, the amount of times this has happened in airline travel is incredibly rare. Uh, these aircraft are designed very well. But if it does happen, that very unlikely event that it does happen, what do we do next? I mean, you've seen on the ground, you push off the gate, and the flight attendants will demonstrate how to put on an oxygen mask. And they'll remind you that even though the bag is not inflated, oxygen will be flowing. Uh, well, fun fact about these oxygen masks, they only provide a, a very short supply of oxygen and it's created from a chemical reaction. There's not oxygen tanks stored in the aircraft at all. These are actually just a, a chemical reaction that once the masks are deployed, whether that's automatically or maybe up in the flight deck, we override the, the drop function. Uh, once those masks drop and you tug on it, it will actually combine sodium chlorate and a small amount of barium peroxide and potassium perchlorate. And this uh, chemical reaction then creates oxygen. And it will only last about 12 to 15 minutes, uh, depending on the exact type of mask. But that's designed to give uh, the pilots just enough time to get the plane down to a safer altitude. In most cases, we want to aim for uh, 10,000 feet, because at this point, 10,000 feet, everyone could breathe normally. Uh, so just for about 12 to 15 minutes, that oxygen will keep you at least conscious until you get to a lower altitude. So that's how the masks work in the back. Again, it's just a chemical reaction. You're able to, to put that on and uh, it'll keep you conscious for a little bit. It's going to be pure oxygen coming out. It's not going to be 
held onto your face. It's not a, a what we call a pressure demand oxygen mask. Uh, so there's no seal on it. So it's kind of just seeping oxygen. And so it still can be a little bit hard to breathe, particularly if the plane is completely depressurized. Your time of useful consciousness is, is not very long when you're way up at 30,000 feet, but it will give you enough oxygen to stay conscious for a few minutes for sure. So what about what happens up front if we suffered some sort of, of loss of, uh, of pressurization? Well, we have a, a separate oxygen system from those chemical reactors uh, in the back for the passengers. We actually have pure pressurized oxygen tanks installed in flight deck. And so uh, the pilots have uh, the two pilots up front and then... Uh, if, you know, every every jet's got at least one jump seat, so uh, there's going to be an oxygen mask for the jump seat as well if we had another occupant up front. So everyone's got masks up front. And this will give us enough time to get the plane down to a safe altitude as long as we get that mask on quickly enough. Uh, and it's not an, an endless amount of, of oxygen. The exact time that we have to get down to that safe altitude really depends on how much oxygen is left in the tanks and how heavily we are breathing. Uh, because the more rapidly you're breathing, the more oxygen you're going to use, the less time you have. Uh, and these masks are they are pretty neat. They're called quick donning masks, which just means that we can put them on very quickly. Uh, and, and every mask is a little bit different, but most of them have this button that you press. So once you pull it out of its little case, you press these buttons, which actually inflates the straps that hold it on to your, to your head. And these straps are, are a uh, hollow elastic strap so when you press the button it inflates the the straps so they get nice and large you can put it over your head and then when you release the button the air flows out and it cinches onto your your head and it and it keeps it uh, nice and tight to your face so even in an unpressurized situation as long as we get those masks on promptly we'll be able to function and fly the plane because it'll be providing pressurized source of oxygen and, and in a situation where maybe there's some smoke in the cockpit or something like that, we have a, a function which will uh, switch it to pressure demand and it'll actually force air. It's kind of like inverse breathing because normally when you relax is on the exhale. So you take an inhale, you're, you're uh, taking air in on the inhale and you're relaxing through the exhale, right? But in a pressure demand situation, you're actually relaxing for the inhale. Uh, and it's a very strange feeling. If you ever have a chance to, to feel what a pressure demand oxygen mask feels like, it's very weird. It's, it's reverse breathing. You have to relax for the inhale and force out the exhale. It's, it's very strange. Uh, but in that situation, that would help purge the mask of any kind of particulates in there. Now, the only annoying thing about these masks is that you first, before you put them on, you have to remove your headset. Uh, and then this means that communication becomes pretty difficult. Uh, the, the oxygen masks have a, a microphone built into it, uh, so it allows us to communicate with each other. Um, but all communications uh, through for air, air traffic control with, with talking to the flight attendants in the back uh, and with talking to each other, the microphone in the oxygen mask picks that up and it transmits uh, what we're saying over the loudspeaker. And it, it just it ends up sounding like a couple of Darth Vader's trying to communicate. I mean, it's just... Hey, can you hear me? I mean, it just, it's, it's something like that. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to talk to each other, uh, but it is enough in order to function and fly the plane and, and quickly get the plane down to a safe altitude. Uh, and once we do establish that communication, we'll grab the quick reference checklist, which is a QRC. Uh, that's what it stands for for short. Uh, and then we'll run the appropriate items. Uh, in this case, it, it probably would have been a cabin altitude high checklist that we'd run. 
and the items pretty much just tell us to get down to a safe altitude quickly. Uh, and we do that by dialing in a lower altitude on our altitude selector. And then we will select flight level change for our vertical guidance mode. Uh, and in this case, it will command power all the way to idle and pitch to maintain a set airspeed. And then lastly, we'll open up the speed brakes to full, the boards to full. And what this does is it adds a lot of drag and increases our rate of descent. And so that once we get down to a safe altitude, which again is usually 10,000 feet, uh, but if we're over mountainous terrain, it could be a little bit higher than that. Uh, once we get down to that safe altitude, we'll be able to remove the oxygen masks, uh, re-establish communication with the headsets, and then talk to the flight attendants, figure out what's going on, you know, what caused that depressurization uh, event. So this all sounds pretty terrifying, right? And again, I'm not trying to make this some sort of morbid podcast or anything like that. I just want to talk about how the pressurization system works and, and what we have to do if something goes wrong. Uh, but up front, it's, you know, we think of it as an abnormality that needs to be remedied. You know, if we run into this kind of situation, we get a, a, a ding on our ICAS. If, if we get a message, if we see our cabin altimeter rapidly rising, we just have to get the job done. And it's, uh, it's something that we're trained on. And has this ever happened to me in real life? No. Uh, but we do undergo a lot of training to prepare us for situations like this if, if it actually does happen. Uh, and you know we can be successful in getting ourselves to safety and that's why we train and train and train. And these full motion simulators that we train in are, are really, really good at simulating any kind of thing that goes wrong. It's, it's, it's amazing. And going through that training, you know, the more we do it, the more practice we have with it, ultimately we, you know, we'll get good at it to the point where any kind of situation that's thrown at us, we do it calmly, we do it with assertiveness, and we use all of our available resources to get the job done, to get the aircraft to a safe position and to get it on the ground. And I mean, if you, if you go onto YouTube, uh, you can easily find yourself down the rabbit hole of, of watching YouTube videos. But there are some really great examples of air traffic control communications that, that have been recorded. Uh, and, and if you head on there, just search, I don't know, emergency airliner or something. You know, you just search anything on YouTube uh, regarding an airliner and, and air traffic control. Uh, and, and there's, there's so many uh, videos out there where you can just listen to the demeanor that the pilots have on the frequency on, on that recording. I mean, we're pilots are under a lot of pressure because things go from you know being completely normal to an absolute cluster of things going on at once but you'll still hear a pretty calm tone in their voices uh, and and this is just possible due to the immense amount of training we do again just repetition repetition doing it over and over again studying checklists studying flows understanding how each system works and it's it's very wild i mean you, you start from the very beginning as a student pilot you have no idea what's going on. It's an absolute fire hose of information coming at you. But then you slowly learn. You get all your ratings done. You become a commercial pilot. And then maybe you become a flight instructor and, and you teach the next generation of flight students. Uh, and even if you don't do that, you're, you're building your flight time by working for aerial survey or, or maybe banner towing. I mean, there's, there's all these ways that you gain more and more knowledge. And then you get to that 1,500 hours that now you get to fly a big jet. And it's a huge journey with many milestones uh, in order to make it. And so that's why these, these voices that you hear uh, on some of these air traffic control communications, it's just, it's so calm. And, and a lot of people uh, I've heard remark will say, yeah, I don't know how pilots are able to stay so calm uh, in the event of, of something going wrong. And it's just over and over and over again, we 
we just run through these situations. Uh, and I mean, think about it. If you think back to the first time you ever drove a car, it was absolutely terrifying, right? I mean, you just, you're focusing on keeping the car straight in the lane, you know, staying in your lane, stay in the boundaries, make sure your turn signal's on at all times when you're turning, come to a complete stop, all, all these little things with driving. And over time, you just, you take it for granted, right? It's just another day uh, going from point A to point B. And, and any situation, any roadway, you'll, you'll go to a completely new setting and you won't know where you are. Maybe you've got your GPS guiding you, but you just, you figure it out, right? You're able to monitor your surroundings. You're looking in your rear view mirror, you know, you're, you're checking around, you're, you're, you have to be a defensive driver at times. You know, for me, driving in the Northeast, Boston area, it's, it's nuts. I mean, there's cars coming at all directions, I feel like, <laughs> but it's, what I'm relating to is the fact that things just become normal. It becomes a, a regular part of your life where when something goes wrong, you make an adjustment and make it right. And that's that's what it really comes down to with, with uh, flying a jet, flying any airplane for that matter, is that so many things can come at you. You just take it one step at a time and solve the problem, get the plane down on the ground and get to safety. And although it seems pretty overwhelming, it seems like a lot, uh, you know, flying's not for everybody. Uh, it's definitely, it's so worth it. Uh, I mean, the amount of, of training you have to go under, the <laughs> money you have to pay for the flight training initially, it's so worth it for the views, being able to travel the world, build really amazing relationships, meet so many people uh, all over. It's worth it, and I wouldn't change it for anything. So there you have it. That wraps up this episode of Cleared for Takeoff. I am really eager to hear what you think about me discussing uh, aircraft systems and, and how things work. I mean, is it interesting? Is it boring? Please let me know. Uh, on the podcast tab on my website, which is pilotgavin.com, um, you can click on the episode you want to comment on and, and leave your thoughts there. I would love to hear them. But thanks for tuning in for this episode. I'll be back next week. And until then, as always, fly safe. <laughs>